High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? To Hollywood. Hollywood? Did you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. I'm so alone. I'm so alone. Oh, Today's dead blonde would become the center of one of the biggest Hollywood scandals of the 1930s, which was ironic given that she had gotten her first big break thanks to the industry's attempts to prove that the scandals of the 1920s were over. When actress and comedian Thelma Todd's body was found one December morning in 1935, The police who came to the scene believed that the cause of her death was almost definitely an accident. And yet, thanks to an overzealous district attorney and a bloodthirsty press that was happy to weave stories out of the thinnest of loose threads, 
Rumors would circulate that Thelma Todd was murdered. Maybe by her ex-husband, maybe by her married boyfriend, or maybe by the mob. These rumors are still alive today, despite the fact that two investigations into Todd's death declared that her demise was probably an accidental suicide. What really happened? Let's find out. Join us, won't you, for the story of the life and death of Thelma Todd. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. As a beautiful blonde high school student in Massachusetts, Thelma Todd longed to go to Hollywood and become a star. She managed to appear in a couple of local independently made films, but these little movies didn't lead anywhere. So she took a job at Woolworths, then trained to become an elementary school teacher while modeling on the side. She started winning local beauty contests, and then, in 1925, found herself in the running for Miss Massachusetts. Paramount Pictures had been in the midst of a nationwide search for new talent, and after a Boston film booking agent sent the studio some of Todd's modeling photos, Paramount's Jessie Lasky sent Thelma a letter, inviting her to audition for a new training program the studio was launching for young, prospective stars. With the scandals of the early 1920s still hanging over the heads of all Hollywood studios, Paramount was trying to counteract the notion that Hollywood was a decadent cesspool by promoting their cultivation of the boys and girls next door into a wholesome new generation of stars. Thelma's interview with Lasky was a success, and the 18-year-old was almost simultaneously crowned Miss Massachusetts and announced as a member of the inaugural class of the Paramount School in glamorous Astoria, Queens. The Paramount School seems like it was something between a scam and a publicity stunt. Students had to pay a tuition of $500, the equivalent of nearly $7,000 today. And given the percentage of students who matriculated to Hollywood, it seems like Paramount got most of its value out of telling reporters that they were serious about fostering a new, scandal-free workplace. But the students were cast in one movie, a thinly plotted showcase for their talents called Fascinating Youth. After filming was complete, Thelma was summoned to a screening room by Walter Wanger, head of production for the studio. Wanger made Thelma sit through the whole movie before presenting her with a one-year contract with Paramount. 
Paramount immediately began casting Thelma in silent comedies, which showcased both her beauty and her effervescent personality. Thelma had started getting the attention of columnists, and other studios desired her services. While under contract to Paramount, Todd was briefly considered for the female lead in Howard Hughes' Hell's Angels, back when Hell's Angels was to be a silent movie directed by Marshall Nealon, a hard-partying car salesman-turned-actor-turned-director who had become friends with both Thelma and Howard Hughes, and who was briefly one of the most powerful men in silent Hollywood. A publicity photo was even released of Todd supposedly enjoying breakfast in bed on the movie's set. But she never actually began work on the movie. Before Hughes could get his shit together to go into production, which would eventually include parting ways with Mickey Nealon, Thelma ran out of time. Other studios were clamoring for her services, and Paramount had made deals to loan her out. Despite her popularity, Paramount dropped Thelma when her contract ended. Thelma would later indicate that she believed that this had something to do with her unwillingness to play a certain game. One night, after completing principal shooting on a new film called The Gay Defender with Richard Dix, Thelma was called to the studio unexpectedly. She figured she was needed for a quick retake on that movie. Instead, she found a party in progress. Other young aspiring actresses were there, drinking and dancing with male executives. One of those executives offered Thelma a drink. But she understood what kind of party this was, and she declined to stay. Before heading west to Hollywood, she had made a promise to her family in Massachusetts. She had said, They'll never get me on the casting couch. Thelma was swiftly signed to a new contract by First National, although that studio included an unusual proviso in their agreement with Todd. Her contract specified that on the date of signing, Thelma weighed 122 pounds, and she agreed that this would not change significantly during the course of her business relationship with the studio. If she gained more than three pounds or lost more than six pounds, her contract could be terminated. Thelma had recently lost a good deal of weight after having been made fun of by her co-star Richard Dix for her round figure, and this contract offered literal incentive to maintain that weight loss. It was 1928, and Thelma's salary of $250 per week was plenty to keep a single girl in chic outfits and baubles, which Thelma regularly showed off at the movie industries in nightclubs and restaurants. Thelma became known around town as the life of most parties. As the jazz age was winding down, so was the age of silent film, and this was the last hurrah for some of Thelma's contemporaries. But Thelma's career was just getting started. She survived her first Rocky Talkies, such as the partially soundtracked Seven Steps to Satan, and was cast in the first talking Laurel and Hardy short, which led to a lucrative contract for Thelma with producer Hal Roach. Roach began regularly using the beautiful blonde as a bubbly straight woman in the male comedy team's movies, which led to Thelma being cast in the same kind of role in a couple of Marx Brothers films, beginning with Monkey Business. Thelma excelled in these roles, but she wanted to do more than support male comedy stars. She wanted to be the star. 
Hal Roach thought he was setting Thelma up for just that when he paired her with Zazu Pitts in a series of shorts, making Pitts and Todd the first high-profile, all-female on-screen comedy team. In their first pairing, the 27-minute short Let's Do Things, Thelma pioneers a craftier-than-she-looks, comically-scheming blonde bombshell, paving the way for Jean Harlow, whose image, from the white blonde hair to the killer curves and big blue eyes, took Todd's look and perfected it. Harlow would become more famous than Todd for playing similar, albeit far more explicitly sexual, roles. Harlow wouldn't start her run of such roles for another year, and it stands to reason that there would have been no Jean Harlow bombshell comedienne if not for Thelma Todd having pioneered that persona. But it was tough being a pioneer. There hadn't yet been a super, super famous lady screen comedian. The biggest female stars of the early talkie era were the serious, even tragic glamour girls like Greta Garbo and Norma Shearer. With no precedent to look towards, Thelma was probably justified in thinking that she needed to diversify. Gloria Swanson had gone back and forth between comedies and dramas, and she may have been someone who seemed like an achievable role model for Thelma, if only in that she took control of her own career. As a hired hand in comedy, women who looked like Thelma were always in danger of being made the butt of the joke, rather than the joke teller. And Thelma gave interviews in which she acknowledged that she was wary of being exploited for her looks. Building on beauty, she said, seems to me to be the worst thing any girl can do. So when director Roland West approached Thelma with an offer to not only cast her in a serious movie called Corsair, but to also help her remake herself as a different kind of star, Thelma jumped at the opportunity. By 1930, when he met Thelma, Roland West had long since established himself as one of Hollywood's key innovators in the horror genre. A vaudeville actor and writer, West made the transition to film through Joe Skank, the New Jersey mob-affiliated amusement park runner who would eventually become presidents of United Artists and 20th Century Fox, and whose brother Nick would come to run the corporate parent of MGM. Roland and Thelma began having an affair on the set of Corsair, and for Thelma, it was serious. Though Roland was over 20 years her senior and was not exactly a looker, she fell deeply in love. More than anything, she might have loved the confidence he gave her that she could do more than Hollywood had previously let her do. That she could be a real actress. Roland loved Thelma too, but he wouldn't marry her. He already had a wife. When West met Jewel Carmen in 1918, she was a 19-year-old screen veteran. Well, she was probably 19. When she had first started working in movies six years earlier, she had lied about her age, claiming to be 17 so that she could freely work as a movie extra. Back then, she was calling herself Vina Quick. A year after landing in LA with stars in her eyes, Vina became the star witness in the statutory rape trial of a man named William Lacasse, a 35-year-old who had allegedly picked Vina up at a nightclub and taken her to his apartment for the night. It was Vina's mother who had filed a complaint, leading to Lacasse's arrest. The defendant admitted that he had dined with Vina and taken her back to his apartment, 
but he insisted that they were never alone together and that she hadn't spent the night. He also believed that Vina was of age. If she had been the age she claimed to be to get movie work, there would have been no case against Lacoste. But now Vina admitted, or claimed, that she was only 15. She was unable, however, to produce a birth certificate as proof. In court, Vina hammed it up for the photographers. She admitted on the stand that she had lied about her age, quote, "'Because I am large for my age. And anyway, who wants to go out with a 15-year-old girl?' The statutory rape charge was dropped, but the judge insisted that Lacoste be retried on a charge of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. This time, when asked about the details of her date with Lacoste, Vina couldn't keep her story straight. Lacoste wasn't convicted, and Vina made herself disappear. She reemerged with the name Jewel Carmen, and in 1916, signed a contract with Fox. On the set of Intolerance, D.W. Griffith himself plucked Jewel out of a crowd of extras and made her a feature harem girl. She then played a teenage Cosette in a 1917 film of Les Mis. Soon, Photoplay magazine was calling her the girl who photographs like a million dollars. Believing she was worth a million dollars, Jewel tried to get out of her contract with Fox so that she could sign a more lucrative deal elsewhere. She attempted to claim that she had signed the Fox deal when she was a minor, so thus it was invalid. In the end, both companies decided they didn't want Jewel. It was around this time that she met Roland West, who was rich, successful, and entrepreneurial. West took an interest in Jewel and cast her in a pulpy drama called Nobody, which was a huge hit. It would be Jewel's last starring role. She ended up suing Fox, and though she eventually won, the case dragged on for years. And as all the stuff about her previous legal misadventures came to light, it sullied her reputation. Luckily, her partner was about to become one of Hollywood's most respected filmmakers. In 1925, Skank got West a job as a producer at United Artists. That year, he had a massive hit directing the Lon Chaney mystery, The Monster. His follow-up was a thriller called The Bat, which featured the first lighted bat signal on a movie screen. This film was as big a hit in its day as future Batman films would be in theirs, even inspiring a sequel called The Bat Whispers. These movies made the couple wealthy, beyond even Jewel's dreams. They settled into a routine of lavish consumption, with Roland taking a break once a year to make a movie. West tested many actresses for the female lead in Corsair, but he was convinced that Thelma was ideal. Their mutual attraction aside, the fact that she had heretofore been primarily associated with comedies offered a unique opportunity for promotion. Roland West decided that Thelma Todd needed a new persona for her dramatic lead debut. He insisted that she be billed in Corsair as Allison Lloyd. It goes far beyond her name, West said. It is an attempt to change her personality and psychological outlook as well. I've instructed everyone connected with the picture to always address her as Allison Lloyd. Thelma Todd is dead as far as we are concerned. The Todd-West romance progressed in lockstep with their Svengali-Galatea relationship, and by the time shooting was complete on Corsair, the affair was virtually public knowledge. 
West told Luella Parsons that he had decided to stay married to Jewel, and in order to forget Thelma, he was going to go on a road trip to, quote, get it out of my system. Thelma did not want to be out of Roland's system, but it was no good pining after a married guy who wouldn't get a divorce. It didn't help matters that Corsair was met with total indifference by critics and audiences, who much preferred the old, funny Thelma. On the rebound, both professionally and romantically, Thelma met Pat DeSico. Pasquale DeSico was the first-generation son of Calabrian immigrants, who had brought over seeds from the homeland and cultivated the first successful broccoli crops in the U.S., Pat had been a playboy since he was old enough to play. He had come to L.A. from New York to chase after Claudette Colbert, who was not yet a big star. By the time he met Thelma, that romance had fizzled out. Pat was handsome and charming, and Thelma was easily swept off her feet by him. After four months of dating, they married. Pat DeSico was exciting to be with, but he was also a louse. His family's broccoli fortune had frittered away, and he was looking for a foothold to maintain the lavish lifestyle to which he had become accustomed. And he had a temper, and a tendency towards violence. Within a month of marriage, the newlyweds had battled it out through enough heated arguments that Thelma started confiding in family members that she regretted getting involved with DeSico at all. By May 1933, when Thelma was sent to the UK for a film shoot, she was content to leave Pat behind. In England, Thelma befriended Stanley Lupino, her co-star in the film, You Made Me Love You, as well as his teenage daughter, aspiring actress Ida Lupino. When not enjoying family dinners at the Lupino house, Thelma made the nightclub scene in London, and news of her nights out made the L.A. papers. This touched off a storm of gossip about the state of the Todd DeSico marriage, the peak of which came in a column in The Hollywood Reporter, which correctly alleged that Pat, who was trying to become an agent, had been unable to convince his wife to dump her current representation and let him take over. The day after that column made print, Thelma changed her will to award Pat DeSico a whopping $1 so that he couldn't contest it. In February 1934, she finally announced that she would seek a divorce. In her filing, Thelma cited the grievous mental and physical suffering she had experienced due to her husband's surliness and temper. DeSico would later tell a different story, claiming that the divorce was an act of quote-unquote gallantry. DeSico claimed that Thelma, quote, put her career before marriage, and I allowed her to get the divorce so that she wouldn't injure her career. He added, she was not the domestic type at all. And yet, there was one man with whom Thelma wanted to play house. Before the divorce was final, Thelma and Roland West got back together. Roland was still married to Jewel, but he and Thelma found a way to make their partnership official. They went into business together. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. In the spring of 1934, Roland, who was something of a real estate maven, bought a property on Pacific Coast Highway. The three-story building allowed for the construction of a restaurant on the two bottom floors. Roland turned the top floor into two apartments, connected by a single drawing room. He moved into one apartment, and Thelma took the other. Together, they turned the lower floors into Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe. Technically, Roland and Thelma didn't live together. Roland owned his own home in the neighborhood where he had lived with Jewel until recently, when Jewel decided she had had enough of her husband's blatant infidelity and moved out. And Thelma bought her own house nearby, too. These legal addresses were sufficient cover for the fact that Roland West and Thelma Todd, though still technically married to other people, were fully living their lives together. In early 1935, Thelma received a couple of extortion letters. She was terrified by the threats and believed that the mob was behind it. She informed the FBI and aided them in every way possible in their investigation. She hired bodyguards and made sure the manager of the sidewalk cafe had a handgun on the premises. Her mansion was robbed while she was out one night, and the thieves made off with $3,000 worth of her possessions. In August, the FBI finally arrested a man they suspected of writing the letters, but he turned out to be the wrong guy. Months later, another guy, who lived in the same apartment building as the first suspect, confessed to the extortion scheme. But the burglary went unsolved. In early December 1935, Ida Lupino, who by now had moved to L.A. and was being promoted as Paramount's newest ingenue, decided to throw a party in Thelma's honor at the Trocadero nightclub. Ida invited her and Thelma's mutual friends. She did not invite the current or former men in Thelma's life. Ida assumed that Thelma wouldn't want to see Pat DeSico there, and she also assumed that if Thelma wanted Roland West there, Thelma would bring him. But when Pat found out about the party, he called Ida and asked why he hadn't been invited. Feeling awkwardly stuck in the middle, 
Ida called Thelma and asked if she should invite Pat. Thelma responded affirmatively. She and her ex-husband were friendly. So Ida told Pat that he was welcome, and she had a place set for him next to Thelma's seat. Thelma dressed for the party in her apartment above the restaurant, in the company of her mother. She put on a shiny blue gown, matching slippers, diamond hair clips, and a mink cape. Outside the cafe, a chauffeur was waiting to drive Thelma to the Trocadero, and Roland was waiting to say goodbye. He couldn't join Thelma because there was too much work to do at the cafe. Thelma and her mother got into the car, and Roland teasingly told his girlfriend that her curfew for the evening was 2 a.m. Thelma laughingly argued, 2.05. Roland told her that if she wanted to stay out past 2 a.m., she should go spend the night at her mother's. Before they drove away, Roland offered one more piece of advice. Don't drink too much. That night, as Thelma... Ida and the other guests ate turtle soup in the Trocadero's upstairs dining room. The seat next to Thelma sat empty. Pat DeSico hadn't shown, and hadn't called either Ida or Thelma with his regrets. Before the end of the night, Ida heard that someone had seen Pat downstairs at the nightclub, dancing with an actress named Margaret Lindsay. 17-year-old Ida became furious that Pat would have the nerve to request an invite to her party, and not only not show, but ditch the party for his ex-wife in order to parade around with another actress in the same club. Thelma went downstairs to dance with Ida's father, and when she saw Pat, she kept her cool, simply suggesting that he ought to apologize to Ida. Pat insisted that he had called the Lupino home that afternoon to say not to expect him. Ida must not have gotten the message. Thelma was satisfied, and the ex-couple went their separate ways. Thelma continued to dance and drink and chat deep into the night. It was 3.15 Sunday morning before she waved goodbye to the Lupinos and got into her chauffeured car. 31 hours later, Thelma Todd's maid showed up to work and went to the garage at Roland West's house. There wasn't space to park multiple cars at the cafe, So Roland and Thelma usually parked at his house and then reached their apartments through a set of outdoor stairs. The maid usually parked her own car at Roland's house before driving Thelma's Lincoln the short distance to the cafe. On this morning, the maid opened the front door of the Lincoln and found Thelma slumped in the driver's seat of her car. She had probably been dead for at least 24 hours. The first person the maid called was Thelma's mother, Alice. By the time she arrived on the scene, the place was crawling with detectives. There were reporters, too. In shock, Alice was observed wailing that her daughter must have been murdered. But quickly, the police on the scene all but ruled out foul play. It seemed evident to them, by the color of Thelma's skin and the situation in which her body was found, that the actress had fallen asleep with the engine on and died of carbon monoxide poisoning, making Thelma Todd's death a tragic accident. But the coroner wasn't so sure. In the morgue, Thelma's corpse was given the once-over, and it was discovered that a brand-new dental crown was loose in her mouth. 
This seemed unusual, and given the extortion threats Thelma had faced, it didn't seem totally out of the realm of possibility that someone could have wanted to do harm to her. Coroner Frank Nance announced that there would be an inquest into the cause of death. Pat DeSico had shown up at the scene of the crime, after the police arrived but before the body was removed. He released a statement to the press, explaining that he had been on the Paramount lot when he had heard that his ex-wife had died. As for why he had shown up to see the corpse, he said, I wanted to know definitely. It seemed so unreal that Thelma's life had been so suddenly ended. I wanted to see the proof with my own eyes. That night, Pat flew to New York, and from there he slammed the coroner for being a headline whore. Quote, trying to make a scandal out of an accidental death. Regardless of the coroner's motivation in prolonging what initially looked like an open and shut case, the local newspapers eagerly capitalized on every crumb of information and new potential angle to the story. Enough publications ran photos of Thelma's corpse that papers that had never published a photo of a dead body in their history felt pressured to follow suit. Soon, reporters, in their search for new angles, essentially started inventing some. Roland West was asked for an alibi. He explained that he had locked the door to his and Thelma's apartments from the inside when he went to bed at 2 a.m. He believed that Thelma had both the keys she would need to get inside with her, but he hadn't been aware that her maid had only put a single key in Thelma's very small evening purse. West admitted that he had heard his dog growl around 3.30, which signaled to him that Thelma was at the door. Roland had immediately gone back to sleep. He assumed that when she couldn't get in, she went back to her car, turned the motor on for heat, and had fallen asleep. Why had she not woken him up to gain entry to the apartments? Said Roland, Thelma was very considerate. In admitting that he and Thelma had had this living arrangement, Roland West was acknowledging her as his mistress, which was pretty scandalous stuff for the 1930s. The alibi thus made the reporters more interested in West's motives and possible involvement, and not less. Reporters also gave a platform to a woman named Martha Ford, who had thrown a party on the day before Thelma's body was found. If Thelma had indeed died on early Sunday morning after accidentally ingesting too much carbon monoxide, then she would have been dead the entire day of Ford's party. But Ford insisted that she had received a phone call from Thelma while the party was happening, and that Thelma had asked for directions and had promised to arrive with a surprise guest. Martha Ford had been surprised when Thelma and her guest were no-shows, because she was absolutely certain that Thelma had told her that she was on her way. Roland West stood by his theory, and like DeSico with the coroner, implied that Martha Ford was simply trying to get a piece of the spotlight. The city officials involved in the inquest insisted its purpose was to dim the spotlight on Thelma Todd's death by providing conclusive answers that would quiet the conspiracy theories. Instead, it did the opposite, giving reporters and columnists a number of threads to pull. The maid who found Thelma's body reported that she had had quite a bit of blood on her face, around her nose. Under pretty aggressive questioning, Martha Ford refused to budge from her story about having spoken to Thelma on Sunday. Roland West was questioned extensively, 
and his testimony shed further light on his and Thelma's relationship. In his testimony, Roland admitted that Thelma was, quote, one of my best friends, if not my best friend. He described the exact layout of their adjoining apartments. He repeated his theory that Thelma, with only one key, had not been able to access the apartments and so she had gone to sleep in her car, with the engine on for warmth. But he admitted that Thelma had known that she could have woken Roland up to gain entry if she had really tried, and that once, in a similar situation, she had broken a pane of glass to get her sleeping lover's attention. He did not know why she hadn't tried it this time, but he repeated a comment he had previously made to reporters. Miss Todd is very considerate. He also implied that he didn't approve of Thelma staying out so late, when he explained that he thought her to be, quote, the most beautiful woman in the world, and that he had recommended to her that she preserve her beauty, and by extension her career, by getting enough sleep. He also noted that you couldn't, quote-unquote, reprimand Thelma like a normal woman because, quote, she was an individual with the strength of any man in this room. Though no one said it, from what was said, you get the impression that Thelma might not have woken her boyfriend up because she knew he would not have been happy with her coming home so late. It would have been just another instance of her not listening to him and not letting him control her. Conflicting information aside, anyone professionally tasked with figuring out how and why Thelma Todd died supported the accidental carbon monoxide poisoning theory. After Martha Ford stepped down, a police officer testified that phone records showed no call was made from any of the phones in Thelma's homes or at the cafe on Sunday. Another policeman stated that there was no evidence that Todd had been killed or killed herself. There was only evidence that it had been an accident. The L.A. County autopsy surgeon concurred. There was no sign of struggle, he said. The blood on Thelma's face was a natural phenomenon that sometimes happened with corpses. The loose tooth was likely knocked loose when Thelma fell unconscious and her face fell forward on the steering wheel. All signs pointed to a tragic accident. And yet, the coroner's jury verdict was inconclusive. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. From the evidence submitted to the jury, the death of the deceased appears to have been accidental, the jury stated. But we recommend further investigation to be made in this case by the proper authorities. So District Attorney Burren Fitz ordered a grand jury probe, which gave the newspapers an excuse to keep the conspiracy theories alive in print, day after day. Some of these conspiracy theories were given room to thrive by the DA's office. So far, nothing conclusive has been brought forward to show that this may have been a murder, admitted Fitz after the initial inquest. But it is obvious that the whole picture is far from clear. Deputy DA Greg Johnson added, If murder was not possible, perhaps even probable, the grand jury would not be interested. The question of murder must be answered. But why were there still questions? And who was left to offer answers? Pat DeSico, for one. He was subpoenaed and forced to return to Los Angeles from New York. And Roland West, who was known as a director of diabolical mystery plots, was now positioned in the press as a suspect. Then, apparently jealous of the attention her husband was getting, Roland West's estranged wife, Jewel Carmen, spoke up, claiming she had seen Thelma alive on Sunday. When given an audience by reporters, Jewel threw subtle shade, telling them she was sure Thelma died of a heart attack because, quote, you had only to see the puffy shadows under her eyes to know that she suffered from a heart affliction. But at the grand jury hearing, it was Ida Lapino who gave the highly circumstantial evidence that could be best twisted into a Roland West motive. The 17-year-old star took the stand and divulged that on her final night alive, at the Trocadero party, Thelma had confessed to Ida that she was in love with a man who lived in San Francisco. Suddenly, there was the possibility that West, aware of Thelma's lover, and enraged that his lover and business partner was going to leave him, had killed her so that she wouldn't be able to. That was a possibility, but it wasn't a probability. The grand jury was grasping at straws and allowing anyone with any connection to Thelma and a theory to have their hour on the stand and their 15 minutes of fame in the papers. All the better if they were already famous, like Ida and Thelma's friend Zazu Pitts, or at least gossip column notorious like Pat Zasico. By the time Roland West testified yet again, instead of repeating the imminently reasonable theory of accidental death that he had put forth previously, he cast himself as a grieving widow, and potentially the next victim, calling Thelma's death, quote, the greatest shock of my life. He added, For days after her death, I could hardly talk. My mouth dried up. My throat burned. He added that now, weeks after Thelma's death, he continued to live above the cafe in fear that, quote, 
Some deranged person might come here for the express purpose of killing me. Add this to the testimony given by Thelma's lawyer, who took the stand and revealed that his client had been afraid of mobsters, and you get an opening for a persistent theory that the mafia had something to do with the movie star's murder. By now, the grand jury hearings were a circus, and it was getting to everyone. After being called to testify before the grand jury three times, Thelma's mother, Alice, angrily spoke to the press, slamming the never-ending investigation as the work of cheap politicians looking for jobs at the expense of my daughter's name. She added, I certainly am convinced that Thelma's death was an accident. If I am satisfied, I don't see why anyone else is interested. Finally, on January 8th, the LAPD ended the grand jury investigation and declared the case closed. Thelma Todd's death was ruled an accident with possible suicidal tendencies. But that didn't stop the speculation or the theories. The most colorful theory put forth by a book called Hot Toddy and then dramatized in a 1991 TV movie starring Lonnie Anderson as Thelma, contends that Thelma was murdered by mobster Lucky Luciano after their romantic relationship soured, and Thelma refused to allow the gangster to install a gambling den in her restaurant. William Donati, who has written books on both Todd and Luciano, has been able to find no evidence that the two ever met. And though various books describe Pat DeSico as Luciano's Hollywood operative, I haven't been able to find anything credible connecting the two of them. The fact that Pat went to work for the extremely xenophobic Howard Hughes as a quote-unquote talent scout slash fixer probably suggests that he had the air of a gangster, but no everyday ties to the mafia. DeSico and West both remain suspects in the eyes of some for the rest of their days in Hollywood. While in Hughes's employ, DeSico began dating teenage heiress Gloria Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt would later explain that she had heard rumors that DeSico was involved in his first wife's death when she became involved with DeSico, but these rumors didn't stop her from marrying him. Maybe they should have. DeSico was violent with Vanderbilt, and she'd later consider the marriage a huge mistake. Roland West was forever tainted by his imagined involvement in Thelma's death, if not merely by their illicit relationship itself. He never directed a film after Corsair. I'm no detective, but in reading all of the evidence and all of the media documenting the ongoing investigations into Thelma Todd's death, I believe it was an accident. I also believe the DA's office and the local press then colluded to keep the case open far past the point when an accident seemed like the probable cause. It's clear that the Todd scandal sold papers, but what would the DA's office get out of the deal? Maybe they loved the spotlight, or maybe they wanted to mount a distraction away from other things going on in the city, or even just in the DA's office. Burren Fitz was up for re-election in 1936, and he had already had one scandal, an indictment on charges of bribery threatened to derail his career. I know, I know. This is starting to sound like something out of a James Elroy novel. But, on the other hand, James Elroy gets it from somewhere. 
Next week, we'll revisit the story of a blonde comic actress who followed in Thelma Todd's footsteps and who also died far before her time. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way you can. You can tweet at us or about us at Remember This Pod. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, which really helps other people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Turn out.